0: things things inside what are the things inside what are the things inside this christian practice of ours this christian service this christian space and room what are the things inside this christian life Uh, What are the things inside us, inside our individual selves and our collective self in this being together? We've been talking about these things inside under the metaphor of the stained glass windows. It's been our semester theme, right? The stained glass windows, these pieces of multicolored glass that are shaped together into symbols and stories that carry meaning. If you've ever seen a stained glass window in a church, these ones here are a bit unusual. They don't, they don't have the stories and the symbols, but in many churches you, you may have seen them, right? These symbols and stories that carry meaning for our community of faith but especially that carry and that impart meaning as they are shined through by light onto the inner space where the community gathers. The light of Christ shining through the stories and symbols that are weaved into the historical and the narrative fabric of our Christian faith. Right? Shine onto us as a living community gathered in this time and space. That's the image we're, we're working with. And as we walk into this space, right, as other people walk into this space, what do they meet? What do they see? What do they perceive? What do they sense? What do they feel? What are the things inside the distinctive things inside. And these things, they're not always palpable, right? They're not always tangible with the sense of touch. Uh, even though they do often take on uh, bodily expressions, right? And, and even make themselves known through, through objects, through, through architecture, through shapes. Last week, we talked about the doors. They're <laughs> Neither in or out, but we talked about hospitality, right? So sometimes they, they take shape. But the thing I want to talk about today, which we only dare call thing within this very specific framework, is, is one that is sometimes expressed in, in palpable objects, candles on a globe, Writings on a piece of paper. But more often, it is seen in bodily expressions of this thing inside. Lifted arms. Bended knees. Hands knit together. Voices speaking or whispering from mouths open under eyes shut. I want to talk about prayer. Prayer. want to talk about prayer. Now for many people, and uh, definitely so in a highly secularized country like Norway is, prayer is truly a thing inside, right? A thing inside. Seldom, rarely, prayer is uttered out loud in the streets, right? Rarely we talk about it in the public sphere or even in a circle of friends or anything like that. There are no people kneeling in prayer in the marketplace or in the public square. But here inside this space, this church building, we pray, right? We pray. And here prayer takes bodily visible expression. People walk in, and depending when they walk in in the liturgy, in the service, we have our hands, we have our eyes closed, we may have our hands clasped, we may have our arms lift, and we're we're praying. We pray out loud, we pray together. Sometimes we light candles, sometimes we lift our hands in blessing or open them in a posture of receiving or of surrender. In this place, with its open doors. Our prayer is public. Whomever wants to can walk through these doors and see us in prayer. And there are many things that we could say and many ways that we could talk about prayer. Right? Yeah. Many different things. But today I want to talk especially about this. Yeah. That in gathering here in the name of Christ, we pray. Publicly and together, even when that togetherness is about us praying in our private hearts in the context of the community, but here together we pray, right? As we walk into into this room, as we gather here on a Sunday. And prayer in this context, it has a dimension of witness, right? Of witness. And of threefold witness, which is often the case with these things holy, It is witness to God. It is an expression that we are bringing before God and in a way affirming to God our relationship to him. It is witness to ourselves. It is something we do to remind and to tell ourselves and to reassure ourselves of who we are and the things we do and the place we put ourselves in reality. And it is a witness to the world. People can see we pray. And that's part of the point. So in order to talk about prayer in this way, I want to bring a story. I want to bring a story, and this will be the story on today's stained glass window, if you will, right? And the image on the window is the image of the prophet Daniel. So you can maybe... Envision, vision, imagine, right, in your head, three stained glass windows, right? On the first one, there is Daniel at the side of King Darius, who was the king of Babylon. And on the corner of this image, you have Daniel standing by King Darius, and on the corner of this image, there are these guys with mean and unhappy faces looking at Daniel. Perhaps you're pointing fingers at him, Right? then the next, the next window, you have Daniel on his knees, and he's praying in front of a window that is facing west. And then on the third window, Daniel is inside a pit or a cave of some sort, and he's surrounded by lions. And here you can use your imagination. I've I took a look this week at glass stained windows, or stained glass windows, uh, with images of Daniel and the lions, and there's all sorts of different interpretations or depictions of what this dynamic between Daniel and the lion looks like, you know. Uh, One of these, Daniel looks like he just walked out of a Hollywood studio, and the lions are looking at him utterly confused if they should eat him or ask for an autograph. On another, you have Daniel looking completely indifferent to these people around him. And the lions look like they're going to lick him. They look like happy dogs. I was very confused by the image. And I even saw one in which you have an angel wrestling with the lions while Daniel looks. So it's sort of a weird thing. I don't know what this looks like, but these are the three images, right? And this is the story. This is the abridged version of the story for those of us who aren't familiar with the story of prophet Daniel. Uh, Daniel was a prophet in the time of the exile. So Israel had been conquered by the Babylonians. And what the Babylonians did uh, when they conquered a population is that they would take key people in that population, uh, skilled workers, leaders, wealthy people, religious authorities, and they would take them and place them somewhere else. They would exile them. And that was a way of of disrupting the social fabric so that there was less chance of an uprising and of conflict, right? So they would take these people and they would take them somewhere else. And Israel was exiled, or at least a significant part of the population, afterwards more. So they're in a foreign land under political exile, political oppression. And Daniel is a prophet in this time. But, but they were allowed to sort of live in that context, right? And to work and to, diff- to do different things. And Daniel is a particularly smart and well-accomplished guy. So he gets to work in the court of King Darius. And he sort of goes up and, and starts becoming a more and more important person. And at certain point... Uh, The king decides to reorganize how his kingdom is going to be reigned, and he creates all these governing positions, and above them, three administrators, of which one of them is Daniel. And they are going to sort of that's the line of command report to him. And Daniel is particularly good, but not only particularly good, he's particularly trustworthy, right? He's not corrupt. He doesn't steal. He does what he has to do, and and he's good at it. So the others start getting envious and angry at Daniel, this Jewish guy who is doing way too well and getting too much authority, and they hear whispers that King Darius is considering to put him over all of them. So what they do is they come to King Darius, and they say, King Darius, we had a great idea. You know how you are the best of all, the best of the bestest. So here's the idea. Let's make a law. Let's make a law that nobody can pray to any other God than you. This is antiquity. In the world of antiquity, this thing of putting religious authority, divinity, and political authority together was just just how it was done. It was very common, right? The Roman Empire, right? The Roman Emperor understood himself as a deity, The pharaoh understood himself as a deity. It was no different in Babylonian religiosity. So let's just say that Darius, nobody can pray to anybody else than you for 30 days. If they do, we throw them to the lions. And Darius is all flattered and says, yeah, sure, that sounds like a great idea. Let's do that. But Daniel, Daniel was a God-fearing Jew, and he refused to play that game. And Daniel goes... And he prays in front of an open window. And I want to read just a little part of the, the end of the story for you. And this is in Daniel chapter 6. From verses 25 to 27. Sorry, before I read this. So Daniel goes, reads in front of the open window. And they knew he was going to do this. So they catch him on the act. And then they come to the king. And they tell the king... Uh, well, uh, well, Dan- Daniel was praying to his own God. And the king is upset. The king likes Daniel, but he can't go against his own decree. So he has Daniel thrown into the pit with the lions. And Daniel spends the night there. And during the night, Darius is in anguish because he didn't want to throw Daniel there. In the morning, he comes, he opens, they go to check, and, and Daniel is fine. Nothing happened to him while he was there with the lions. Nobody can explain it. They bring him out of the pit. And Darius, and this is what I wanted to read from you, is from 25. Then King Darius wrote to all the nations and peoples of every language in all the earth, may you prosper greatly. And this is, of course, this is hyperbole, right? This is how you talk about a great king, right? It's all the nations of all the earth, everybody under his rule, right? May you prosper greatly. I issue a decree that in every part of my kingdom, People must fear and reverence the God of Daniel, for he is the living God and he endures forever. His kingdom will not be destroyed, his dominion will never end. He rescues and he saves. He performs signs and wonders in the heavens and on earth. He has rescued Daniel from the power of the lions. Now this is this is the abridged version, but this is a well known story. Right. This is a well-known story, a powerful story, and certainly it is a story about prayer, right? Prayer has a central place in the chain of events. The whole thing twists around or, or turns around this image of Daniel praying in his room with the open window, despite the decree that nobody could pray to any other God or would be thrown to the lions, right? Right? And in some of these depictions, you will have the, the idea of Daniel also praying in the lion's den while the angels protect him. Right? It's a well-known story. Prayer has a central part. And it also, I think, is a very good story to talk about prayer and especially to talk about prayer as witness. And I think it's a, it's a good story for two reasons. And one reason is that it shows the danger of a shallow approach to prayer as witness. And the other reason is that it also shows, if we are attentive to what's going on, it shows the stuff for the real solid life of prayer, which becomes witness. Now, the shallow approach comes when we sort of rush through the story and we focus on Daniel. Uh, and we focus on Daniel praying in front of the open window, and we take that as an act in itself. Right? And that's the stained glass window taking our whole story, that image. And we look at that and we take that as an act in itself, and we say, Wow, look, look at his courage, look at his audacity, look at his faithfulness. He is in danger of being killed, and he dismisses this danger by showing everyone how he prays to his God. Now, that approach definitely shows the act of prayer as witness, but witness to what? What's the point? Witness to what? Now the Pharisees at the time of Jesus, they were well trained in this approach. Making up a public event out of their prayer. And Jesus actually criticizes them for it. He says that, They would make a point out of praying in public spaces where they could be seen acting out body language that would sort of match their words of piety and high spirituality. And Jesus criticized them by saying that they were already getting their reward right there on the spot. Because the witness of their prayer was about themselves and not about God. Their prayer did not talk to God or draw the focus to God. It was a monologue to themselves in order to draw attention and focus to themselves for the sake of themselves. But that's not what Daniel was doing. He did not put up a show of piety by praying three times a day after the decree. Praying for Daniel was a fundamental part of how his spiritual life integrated into all other aspects of his life. And this is the difference. Daniel did not pray with open windows because he wanted to be seen. He prayed with open windows because he wanted to see. Daniel didn't pray. Again, this is very important. He did not pray with open windows because he wanted to be seen. Daniel prayed with open windows because he wanted to see. Remember when I talked about these three stained glass windows and I talked about Daniel kneeling before a window in prayer and the window is facing west. Why is it facing west? Because he's in exile in Babylon, which is east of Jerusalem. And as Daniel is praying, he is looking towards Jerusalem. He is looking towards Jerusalem and he's looking towards that absurd distance in between him and the holy city and his motherland and all the pain and all the sorrow that covered that distance. And he's looking in that direction because that is what his prayer is all about. That is the subject of his prayer. So the the prayer expressed in this story from Daniel, it is A way of engaging with reality, right? A way of engaging with our own reality and the reality around us. And it is a way of engaging with it from the perspective of God's power and and compassion. From the perspective of their redemptive and relational action in history. This is what this means for Daniel. Daniel was praying before open windows because he was in exile in Babylon and he believed, despite being in exile in Babylon, he believed that God who had already freed his people before could and would do it again. So his prayer life wasn't a withdrawal from reality, but it was a direct way of tackling reality with the understanding that God could act in history and that God cares enough to act in history. And that Daniel himself could witness and be a part of that. And Daniel was doing this in what is, for the, for the Jewish people at this time, the most explicit feeling of abandonment. They were exiles. They had lost the land. They had lost the temple. They have failed the promise. And there are a couple of indications in the text that Daniel was not going about with false piety, right, for why I'm arguing this, but rather having this engaged life of prayer. One indication is that the text says that he did this every day. That he went to do it as he had done it. So this was not something that he came up with after the decree of the king. He didn't suddenly go, okay, so how can I show people just how faithful I am to my God? Right? This wasn't something that he came up with to show everybody how spiritual he was. This was a part of his identity that he refused to neglect in order to conform to oppression. Because that's what was going on, right? This was a part of himself that he refused to neglect in order to conform to oppression. So this is not something he starts doing afterwards. So that's one indication. But the other indication, which perhaps is the more significant one, is that it was not really Daniel's life of prayer that bothered those officials. They couldn't care less if he prayed or not. That's not what bothered them. For them, this wasn't about his prayer. It was about the way he lived. That was their problem. Their problem was his integrity. Their problem was that he was not corrupt. Their problem was... The way he lived. But here's what these corrupt officials understood that maybe sometimes we struggle to understand. (laughs) I know I do. And that is that Daniel's life of prayer was an integral part of his way of living, it was an essential part of his integrity. So the invitation of the story of Daniel, as we look at this story and and think, how does this shine on us, right? The invitation of the story of Daniel is for prayer that is not a witness because people see us pray, but is a witness because prayer is an integrated expression of our faith and hope that God is good and loving God. That God is a relational God who is near and reveals himself to us and whose goodness and grace can be revealed even in our lives, even in this place, even in this town, even in this neighborhood, even in my life, whether it's lived at the temple or whether it's lived in exile. God's nearness and the goodness of life lived in the awareness of his presence are both aspects of the witness of this God who cares for his creation and engages with it. And both aspects are present in a life of prayer such as that of Daniel. Prayer that doesn't withdraw from reality but engages with it because the God we pray to is intimately involved in it. Daniel prays with windows open towards Jerusalem, over the plains and over the panes of Babylon. What does that look like for us? For us who see this story and, and want to understand what it means for the light of Christ to shine through it. What does it mean for us? Well, when Jesus teaches us about prayer in the Sermon on the Mount, which is how Matthew gathers a lot of the teachings about, uh, from Jesus, when Jesus teaches us about prayer in the Sermon on the Mount, it, it might seem like he's advising the opposite of what Daniel does. I want to read it for you. This is in Matthew 5. Matthew 5 from verse 5. Matthew 6, thank you very much. 6 from verse 5. And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. If we make this about doors and windows, it will, of course, sound like confusing advice, right? Should they be closed? Should they be open? Should we be doing this in the private of our rooms or should we be doing it here in this public space? What's the deal? Is, what's the sweet spot? Is it closed doors and open windows? Like, what is this, right? But this is not about that. It's about if our prayer is a hopeful prayer of faith or a self-centered prayer of pride or of greed, right? Jesus is speaking against prayer as religious performance and he's speaking for prayer as engagement with the world in the reality of faith. And this comes out quite strongly in the context of the Sermon of the Mount, doesn't it? Pray for forgiveness. Then go and believe in that forgiveness. Forgive. Pray for forgiveness. Then go and believe. In that forgiveness, forgive those who sin against you. Pray for your daily bread. Then go and believe. Break the bread and share it. Pray that Christ be with us in temptation then go and believe it. Don't dabble in corruption. Don't feed greed. Have nothing to do with exploitation. Fight against it. This prayer sends you into the world. Pray for healing, then go and engage with healing. Take care of the sick. Spend time with the lonely. Pray for reconciliation. Then go and engage in reconciliation. Don't put up with the, lo- with the algorithms. Don't put up with it. Dare to love the other. There to reconcile. And then come back and pray again. And pray again. Keep the resistance, right? Keep the resistance. Insist with prophetic resilience and faith that God is good, that God is here. And that redemption will break the plains of suffering throughout history with living water. Up till the day, up till the day that the valleys of death are flooded with grace. So we keep on praying. We keep on praying in our rooms and here with these open doors. We keep on praying under the light of Christ shining through stories like those of Daniel and those of me and you. Today, we keep on praying. When prayer feels like exile and when prayer feels like home. We pray, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth, here today, as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. And the will to share it. And forgive us our debts as we also forgive our debtors. And lead us not, Lord, into temptation. When temptation comes, be with us. And deliver us from the evil within and without. Give us, Lord, the will, the strength, and the faith to pray in bended knees and as we walk. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you. May you know that he is gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you. When you're safe at home and when you're in exile, may he give you peace. So go in the peace of our Lord Jesus Christ, and serve the Lord and serve the world joyfully.